0: Well, last week we began our Advent series. The word Advent, as you'll remember, means coming, as in speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And this is a time where we focus on Christ coming into the world. On our website, you'll find an Advent devotional guide that our staff has prepared. It has readings and songs and family activities and devotionals that will help us during this time to focus our hearts and minds on the coming of Jesus Christ. The greatest gift that God gave to us and that any of us can ever receive is that of his son, Jesus, not just at Christmas, certainly the best Christmas gift ever, but at any time of the year. John three sixteen tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so if you've never unwrapped that great gift, I invite you to do so. As we prepare our hearts for him, we're going to see today in Luke chapter 2 that God was at work preparing For his son to come into the world as well as we look at Luke 2 verses 1 through 3 it says now in those days a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census each to his own city. Now that title Caesar means ruler. Uh, it was actually a family name of the Caesar family that because so many of the rulers of Rome came out of this family it ultimately became used as a Roman ruler title. Many of you have heard of the name Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar as you'll remember was assassinated on the Ides of March by a group of Roman senators. Julius Caesar Rome was actually a republic, and Caesar was beginning to take more and more power and trying to turn it into an empire. And so these senators uh, assassinated him to keep him from getting control. Now Julius Caesar was the uncle as well as the adoptive father of uh, Caesar Augustus. As the adopted son of Julius Caesar, he actually had the name Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius. And Octavius was 18 years old and studying in Greece when the assassination of his uncle and adoptive father took place. Now, Octavian was the designated heir to take over for his uncle, uh, but because a coup had taken place, there was a, a power struggle for the throne. And so Octavian came back, took control of a portion of the army, and he began to uh, take back the parts of the uh, republic that had been scattered among others. He defeated Cassius and Brutus, who were the leading conspirators in the assassination. There was a Roman senator by the name of Lepidus who was in control of another part, and Octavian forced him into retirement, and so that left just one main adversary, a general by the name of Mark Antony, and Mark Antony had formed an alliance with Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt, through an affair they were having, and uh, Octavian would go to battle against both of them in their navies at the Battle of Act. Actium in 31 BC he defeated these combined navies of Egypt and those under Mark Antony. And so having uh, wiped out the last of the uh, opposition he was able to consolidate all of the areas of Rome as well as to bring Egypt now in control and that is what established the Roman Empire. So I said that, that God was preparing things and Octavius was actually the first Roman emperor. And there was something called the Pax Ramona or the Peace of Rome. And that that created a worldwide system of roads where all of the known inhabited places were connected. There was a single language that was brought in. There was this relative peace among the world. And so this was used by God to begin to prepare the world for the spread of the gospel that was soon to come. Now being the sole ruler, Octavian took the title we see here of Augustus. And Augustus is a Latin word that means to illuminate, to revere, to be holy. It was a a title used of gods and idols. So when we read Caesar Augustus, he is literally claiming to be a god and and to be worshipped as one because he had control of the known world. Now, to solidify control... We see Caesar Augustus wanted a head count of the people in the world, and this was so he could uh, begin to receive taxes from everybody. So this decree goes out, and uh, everyone has to go back to their places where their families were born. And this is the background that I want you to understand, because what we have is a man claiming to be God, who is a self-appointed ruler who wants to be served, and into this story will enter the true God of heaven the true God-man, who comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a sacrifice to save us. Mark 10.45 tells us, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Caesar Augustus thought he was calling the shots. He thought he was in control, but it was really the true God of heaven who was in control. And he uses this pagan ruler, this emperor, to put out a decree, and then he uses a Syrian governor in the area where Israel is under control to have this decree that would move Mary and Joseph and this soon-to-be-born baby Jesus from Nazareth 80 miles to Bethlehem. And this was in fulfillment of the prophecy that God had given 700 years before the things I just told you were taking place. Because in Micah 5, 2 through 3, it says, But it's for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up uh, until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that we see in the second part of Luke The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And as you look at John 6.35, Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. And so the bread of life is born in the house of bread in fulfillment of the prophecy that God had given that his son would come into the world. And another fulfillment is found in that Joseph and Mary are both descendants of the line of David. There was a prophecy and a promise given that King David would have a descendant who would sit on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem and would rule. And we've seen as we finish our series in the book of Daniel, if you were here you'll remember there is a second advent, a second coming that will take place when Jesus Christ will return from his place in heaven where he is right now waiting to return to the earth with the raptured armies of heaven and he will set up the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign here on earth and he will literally reign from the Davidic throne there in Jerusalem, fulfillment of yet another prophecy pointing to the promised Messiah. As we're talking about these prophecies in the fulfillment of them, uh, mathematicians have tried to figure out what are the odds that a person could fulfill the prophecies found in the scriptures. Now, there are over 350 prophecies in 3,000 verses in the Bible that point to the coming of the Messiah. There are some yet to be fulfilled, like the second coming, the things that we just talked about. But as you look at those that have been fulfilled, if you take even just a handful of them, a portion of the prophecies that were given, and you say, what are the odds that a person could fulfill them? Mathematicians have said that the odds would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, what does that mean? One in 10 to the 17th power. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine I were to take a silver dollar and I were to put an X on it, and I were to take this silver dollar and I were to go somewhere in the state of Texas and I were to lay it on the ground, and you were to come and you were to find that silver dollar. Now, in order to fulfill the odds of it, it wouldn't just be a silver dollar somewhere in the state of Texas. You would cover the entire geographic landmass of Texas in silver dollars, Not just one layer, two layers, three layers deep, but ten layers deep in silver dollars. And if you were to get into a helicopter and you were to fly somewhere over the state of Texas and on your very first try you were to reach down and pick up the one silver dollar that had an X on it, the odds of you being able to do that would be one in ten to the 17th power. Could you do it? The odds are astronomical. But friends, it's not just that Jesus Christ fulfilled a handful of the prophecies. He fulfilled every single one that has been given. And the odds of that, we can't even calculate. Only God can. And only God could fulfill that because only Jesus Christ is the God-man. Caesar Augustus is a man who claimed to be God. But only Jesus is the true God-man. In John 3.16, he's called the only begotten son of God, and the Greek word used there is monogenes. Monogenes is a word that means the unique, one-of-a-kind God-man. There is no one who has ever lived or will ever live other than Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, fully God, fully man. Last week, Jason talked about the virgin birth where we saw in Matthew one twenty-four through 25, it said, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now here in Luke's gospel, we see that this truth is again mentioned because in verse 5, it says, Mary was engaged and was with child. Now in the Jewish culture, there were steps to a wedding. You know, in our society, we'll put a ring on a finger of somebody and say the couple is engaged, but we don't consider them married yet. But in Jewish culture, once the betrothal took place, they were officially married. But the consummation of that relationship would not take place until about a year after. And so when it says that Mary is engaged with child, it's telling us very clearly that she has not had sexual relations with Joseph, and yet she's pregnant. Now, we're reading the Gospel of Luke, and I'll remind you that Luke is a medical doctor. So when Luke tells us this, he's being very precise. He wants the reader to know Mary is still physically a virgin, and yet she is pregnant. And the way that this occurs is found in Luke one thirty-five, because there it says, The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God there's this miraculous conception that takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a a, a virgin birth, as Jason talked about last week, that shows uh, very clearly that Jesus Christ is God. And what we're reading about now here in chapter 2 is where this pregnancy has gone full term. They've made the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the birth. And as they traveled, it would have been a very difficult journey. Uh, any of you ladies who... Have been pregnant, can imagine what it would be like to ride on the back of a motorcycle down dirt trails at nine months of pregnancy. That wouldn't be very comfortable, would it? Well, this is even worse. You're on the back of a donkey. You're going up and down rocky trails. There's dusty uh, trails that you're on, and you're traveling 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It would have taken days for this journey to occur. And it's not just the travel that's hard. Remember the setting of the story Rome is in power. Israel is under this foreign occupation. There would be military troops in the streets. There's this decree that has gone out. You're being forced to uproot and crisscross the country as well as everybody else. The roads are clogged. Supplies are in short uh, supply. You can't just go to the, the store and get what you need. Everything has been bought up. We know a little bit of what that's like right now with COVID, Right. You've gone to the toilet paper aisle, and there's nothing there. You've gone to get disinfectant. There's nothing there. And, well, imagine in this day this is what it is. There's a run on everything. There's no supplies. There's no transportation available. Uh, I think of another difficult time where shortages were in place, and that was 19 years ago. Uh, My wife and I, with our daughter Sarah, who at the time was just four days away from her first birthday, were in California when September 11th happened when the terrorist attacks occurred and my wife and daughter and I had flown to California because I had a buddy who was uh, that I'd gone to high school with and through college he had been a marine fighter pilot and was now working for United Airlines so he worked for United his wife was a flight attendant for United and they invited us to come and got us one of those free tickets you could get as a you know travel voucher and we had flown there to California and we were in their house, and we had, you know, we're coming to the end of our vacation, and then September 11th happened. And like many of you, we watched in horror as the events were unfolding on TV, as we watched the planes hitting the Twin Towers, as we watched the Pentagon and the other one in Pennsylvania that went down. And it was a much different experience than maybe some of you had because we were in the home of a pilot and a wife who was a flight attendant, and the phone was ringing off the wall. Other co-workers of them were calling to see, is either Steve or Stacy in the air? Are they one of the ones potentially on one of these planes? Then we started getting the operational updates as the flight center was calling in, talking about cancellations, changing things, all that was going to happen. It became very clear to us that we were not going to be able to fly home. And so I immediately began to try to make preparations to get from California to Texas. And I called Amtrak, and all the trains were stopped or the things were completely booked. I started calling all the rental car companies. None of them were releasing cars. Or So we, we were stuck in California. We weren't going to be able to fly home. And I kept finding uh different avenues and tried different things and finally I found a car company that said, Well, we have a van we'll rent you to go from California to Texas at exorbitant rates, but hey, we're gonna we're gonna take it. And so three days of trying to find a car, I get this van. And we go and we we rent the van and now I had to outfit it for a road trip I hadn't planned to do with a one-year-old and a, a wife. And so we went to the store, we bought an ice chest, we bought toys to keep our daughter occupied, we bought Uh, provisions, thinking we might have to sleep in the car because all the hotels and things were full. And as we prepared to set out on the road from California to Texas, uh, we finally got on the highway. We got up to highway speed. And as soon as I passed 55 miles an hour, the van started to shake. And it wasn't just a little shimmy. This was like the thing was breaking apart, shaking, right? Have you ever, like, yelled into a fan and got that, uh... Well, imagine a one-year-old in the back seat screaming, going, as she's being shaken apart. And so I thought, did we hit something? Is the alignment out? What's going on? I pull off to the next exit, and I look. The van looks mechanically sound. Uh, get back on the road, same thing. Get up around 55, 56, 57. We're, you know, breaking apart. And so I pull off again. I call the rental company. I say, hey, this, this van is, is defective. And they're like, well, you've got two choices. You can bring it back, or you can take it to Texas and drive 55 the whole way. Well, it had taken three days to find a car, so we decided we would press on. And so for what was already going to be a long, difficult journey turned into an even longer and difficult journey. As we're driving through the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico, having everybody pass us 20 miles an hour faster (laughs) as we're crawling along. Uh, We finally make it to Dallas, we go to turn the van in, they go to check us in, and they go, "Um, you're not supposed to be driving this car, it's been junked. (laughs) And uh, to keep a a lawsuit from happening, I think, they said, no charge. And so, (laughs) you know, God protected us, we got home. But it was a very long and difficult journey. But it was nothing like being on the back of a donkey at nine months pregnant, trying to get to Bethlehem. You know, as they traveled, God was watching over this young family, and he gets them to Bethlehem just in time for the birth of the baby. Now, remember, others were traveling at that time as well. Jason will be talking next week about the shepherds who were a short distance away when the angel appeared to them and told them to go and see the promised one who had been born in this manger. There were magi, wise men, the kings, the three kings who were traveling that were coming. Now, I don't want to mess up anybody's Christmas, but if your home is like mine, we have the manger set up and we have the donkey, you know, donkey, sheep, shepherds, and then we have the camels and the three wise men there at the manger. Uh, They actually didn't come for months, maybe even up to a year after the fact. So you can leave them there. They're in my home as well, right there. But they were traveling Uh, sometime after the birth of the baby. They knew the baby was coming. They had been watching for it. And as they traveled, you'll remember, as they said, we've been following his star, they show up in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. That's where the palace was. That's where the king, you would think, would be. If you were traveling up a road and you saw a sign that said, Uh, capital of Israel, next right, wouldn't you pull off and go to Jerusalem where the palace is rather than going five more miles up the road down a dirt uh, path to get to this little speed bump of a city called Bethlehem? Now, how did these magi, these wise men, know to, to come and seek the one who was the promised one? Well, this word magi, magoi, is what's actually in our scripture, the plural form. It's a Persian and Babylonian word that designates an expert in astrology, interpretation of dreams and other secret arts. Now, this isn't talking about some palm reader. Uh, the reason they're called wise men is because these were the scientists. These were the academicians of the day. These were the, the people who were learned and studied and, and were the, the brain trust of the day. And we're told they're from the east, which is where the Media-Persian Empire was located. You remember from our study in Daniel, this would be the area of Iraq and over into Iran even. And so these are these uh, Persian kingmakers that are coming. And as we saw in Daniel, Daniel was raised in the Babylonian captivity there in the Media-Persian Empire, and Daniel 5.11 told us, And King Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. So again, as we talk about God preparing for his son to come, 500 years before the things we're reading about took place, God had placed his prophet Daniel in this place to share the good news about the coming of the promised one, the Messiah. You'll remember in our study in Daniel, the prophecies were so precise They came down to the very day that the Messiah would be here. Remember in Daniel 9.27 when it said the Messiah would be cut off pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus, we saw it came down to the literal day. And so this Babylonian brain trust of the past had the the readings of Daniel. They had the the knowledge that the Messiah was coming. They were told to look for the signs and the stars. And as they see the, the... triple conjunction of the planets that were taking place they say it's time and they began this journey from the east to come and seek the one who was born king of the jews and as they come they go to the palace thinking well of course this would be where the 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 king of the jews would be born but jesus wasn't born into royal splendor rather it was a humble manger the bible tells us in second corinthians 8 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through you, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. You know, as you think about what Jesus gave up, we would expect the King of kings and the Lord of lords to be born in the most opulent palace on earth. But friends, even the most opulent mansion you can think of here on planet earth would be worse than a stable. When you compare it to the throne of heaven that he left and came to the earth. As we think about what Jesus did, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tells us this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This tells us that the eternal creator... God in heaven humbled himself to the point of becoming part of the creation. God took on the limitations of flesh and blood that we possess as men and women. He became this helpless baby where others had to feed him and change his diapers. The creator became a part of the creation. The baby of Bethlehem came so that he could ultimately be the Christ of Calvary who would go to the cross and die to pay the penalty of death that you and I owe for our sins. This is something the prophet Simeon points to in Luke 2:34 through 35. As he said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This, of course, is pointing ahead to the crucifixion of Jesus. And as you read in John 19:25 through 27, you see the fulfillment of this prophecy as Mary stood at the cross watching her son, the baby of Bethlehem, become the Christ of Calvary and be crucified as she wept at the foot of the cross. In Luke 2.11, we're told, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Notice three titles that are found there. Savior, showing he's our deliverer, the one who was sent to set us free from the penalty of sin and death. He's called the Christ. Friends, that's not his last name. That's a title that means literally the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus, a name that means Savior. Savior, Messiah was born. And he's the Lord, showing that although he left his place in heaven and took on flesh and blood, he remained fully God while being fully man. As this amazing truth is being shared with the shepherds, Jason will tell us next week how the messenger appears, an angel, and the glory of God shining around as he tells him, and I bring you this great news. And it wasn't just one angel. Shortly after that, a whole army of angels appears. If one angel's light was blinding, imagine the beauty of that moment. As this angel army appears, imagine the beauty of the voices are singing praises about the baby born, the God-man here on earth. Now, the purpose of all this wasn't to entertain them. Rather, it was to impress upon them this great truth of the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in turn, for them to go and share this truth. Because when the angel said, I bring you good news, the Greek word used here is euangelizomai. Euangelizomai. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's where we get our English word evangelism. And it literally means to share the good news. The gospel is the good news of the coming of God's son, Jesus Christ, who would go to the cross to die to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine and how he would rise from the dead three days later showing he conquered sin and death. And these shepherds are told, go, share the good news about the savior of the world who has come. Last week, Jason talked about the hope we have. Friends, hope isn't just something we have. It's something we're called to share. We live in a time where people need hope. We live in a time where with all the COVID isolation and quarantines going on, even more and more people during this time of the year are feeling the loneliness of being alone. Christmas and Thanksgiving in this season is already hard enough on many as it's a reminder for those who are alone or have lost loved ones men and women who are widows or widowers, others who are are missing loved ones, this is always a hard time of the year, but it's even more so during this time of isolation. And so think about your friends, think about coworkers, others that maybe you haven't seen or talked to in a while, people you know who maybe this is a hard anniversary for them and and call them, just say, hey, I was thinking about you. Write them a note, send them a card, do something to say uh, you're loved. Share God's love with them. We have this privilege of sharing about the love of God. Remember John three sixteen said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As so we talk about the love of God and his son being sent, another passage is first John four, seven ten through first John chapter four, verses seven through ten tell us this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this is the love of God manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means the payment. It means the satisfaction, the completion of the debt that was owed, the removal of the wrath. If you kept reading in 1 John 1.14, it says, The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What Luke said. This is the Christmas story. Jesus coming into the world. He took on flesh and blood. Uh, 1 John four nine said he was manifested. This word means to make known or to be shown. This this baby was a manifestation of God as he was born. It's not until the second advent, the second coming of Christ, when we're going to see the full glory of God as he returns as a conquering king of kings and lord of lords with the armies of heaven. But what we see at the birth of the baby is the manifestation, the full display of God's love. Because Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when he gave his son, it was a demonstration of his love to save us. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. I love the way Max Licato puts it. He said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and yet he chose your heart. Friends, God is crazy about you and me. He didn't say, I love you this much or this much. He said, I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide, and he died on the cross to save us. As we talk about God's great love for us, 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I told you that word means the payment. The full definition of it means to appease, to give satisfaction, as in satisfying the requirements of God's holy law. It not only covers the penalty, but it removes the wrath when we sinned, our relationship with God was broken and he restored it. We've not just been welcomed into the to heaven one day when we die, but it says we're welcomed into the family. He's adopted you and me as sons and daughters of his when we come to faith in his son. This word for propitiation is the Greek word holismos. If you look at the uh, Hebrew, which the, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation called the Septuagint. And in that, if you look at the word for the mercy seat, which is the covering, that that top of the Ark of the Covenant, you remember the Ark of the Covenant uh, was placed behind the veil in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And this is where the high priest once a year would go beyond the veil and he would place the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat covering this holismas, Literally the propitiation seat. And as it points to who Jesus is and what he did. It's describing this. As you look at the scriptures. Hebrews 10.4 says. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. To take away sins. All the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. All of the blood spilt. Could not remove the penalty of sin. It was just. Keeping the account current, so to speak. If you've ever had a credit card where you owe a balance and you make just the minimum payment on it, you know the principal is still there. You're just keeping the account current. I saw an ad recently that said, Make this Christmas one you will not soon forget. Charge everything. (laughs) You know, too many people know the reality of that statement, right? You buy something you can't afford. You owe this payment that keeps showing up on a bill that reminds you after the toys are broken, the fun is gone, that you still owe a debt. You still owe a payment. And, friends, there is a payment for sin that is owed. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin can be fun, but it's been said of sin, it will take you farther than you wanted to go, it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And there is a penalty for sin called death that has to be paid. And Jesus Christ came and he paid that penalty that you and I owe. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He gave us this gift of grace. He gave us this baby at Bethlehem to be the payment for our sins the death of animals could not remove the penalty that was owed, but the death of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, could. In John one twenty nine, when Jesus Christ was coming, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the blood of Jesus was applied to the holismos, the top of the mercy seat as he died, the scriptures tell us in John 19.30, as Jesus Christ was breathing his last on the cross, he said, it is finished. That's how it's translated in our English Bibles. The Greek word used there is toteleste." It literally means "paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. And to show that the account was closed, to show that it was not a temporary covering, but the bill was paid in full, it was literally ripped up because you remember there was that veil in the temple that separated the holy of holies from the rest. Man could not come into the presence of God except once a year the high priest put that offering of blood just to kind of keep the account current, so to speak. And when Jesus died on the cross, the scriptures tell us in Luke twenty-three forty-five that at the moment he died, the veil in the temple was torn in two. And friends, this wasn't some flimsy piece of fabric you could rip. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us it was several inches thick. He said you could tie a horse to either end of the curtain and it would not be able to rip it in two. And yet as Christ died and said, paid in full, God tore the veil in, t- in two from heaven to earth. Matthew 27, 51 says, from top to bottom, showing that God said, the account is closed. I've ripped up the the bill because Jesus paid the penalty for you and me. He's covered our sins in full. The baby of Bethlehem came to be the Christ of Calvary. And we remember that now as we come to the communion table. As we close today, for those who are worshiping online with us, if you'll take the elements you've prepared, the the crackers and the the juice, this is a time where we're going to be celebrating communion. For those of you who, as you came in, you should have picked up a, a little receptacle like this. It has juice on the bottom and bread on top, and we'll talk about this here in a moment. Be careful as you peel back the top, especially the bottom, so you don't spill the grape juice on yourself, but... If you'll take and you'll peel back that top layer, you'll find the wafer. And remember, we've been talking about Bethlehem, the house of bread. This is the bread of life, Jesus Christ, as John 6 tells us. He came, he took on flesh and blood because God said there has to be the offering of blood To remove the penalty of sin. The book of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats and others could not remove it. Only Jesus Christ could take away that penalty. And so as Christ came, he took on flesh and blood. So he could take on your sin and mine as he went to the cross. And as we take and eat this now, we remember the sacrifice of the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Eat it in remembrance of him. Now, as you open the cup with the juice, this juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed. Again, as we've seen in the scriptures, uh, the sacrifices offering before could not remove the penalty of sin. But the Lamb of God could, the perfect and permanent sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So we remember today what he did for us as he went to the cross the baby of Bethlehem becoming the Christ of Calvary to pay for your sins and mine, the blood of Jesus drinking in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, your written word that points us to who your son is, the promised one. The one who would come and give his life, dying on a cross to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. We thank you, God, for his great sacrifice, his great gift to us. We thank you, God, for your word, not just written word, but your living word, Jesus, who is called in John one: 1 In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Lord Jesus, we know you are fully God, fully man. You are the one and only begotten son the one who freely gave your life to give us the gift of eternal life. And so this Christmas season, we want to remember and we want to thank you. We want to worship you. Thank you for your great gift of grace. Thank you for your great gift of life. May we who are recipients of this truth, who have come to know your son, go into the world and share this good news with others who need to know. Thank you again for Christmas Thank you for the best gift we will ever unopen, ever open, that of your son. And so we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you again for being here to worship with us. We look forward to having you back next week online or here in present with us. And uh, we ask that you go into the world and share the good news that the Savior has come. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.